0: So I feel very privileged to worship with you this summer and very privileged to consider the scripture passages for this summer. We are in First Corinthians all summer long, and I love to be in one book of the Bible for a long period of time. So I look forward to digging around in the scripture with you and seeing what we come up with this summer. Last time I was in front of you, we blessed Michael and we sent him on uh, to St. Andrews. And part of my blessing to him was to recall a memory that I had of him 18 years ago in my kitchen. And week before last, guess what? Michael and I were standing by my stove. And he said, look where we are. And he high-fives me. I was like, oh, God, you're good to me. You are even personally good to me. So we're in First Corinthians chapter 2 this week. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians two to four years after Paul had founded that community. He organized that community, and then he went on to organize other communities. And so two to four years later, he wrote back to them. He writes back to them because they have written to him. Paul's received two different pieces of correspondence from that community. One piece of correspondence was from Chloe's household. Chloe was the head of that household, and the people in her household have written to Paul, and they have told Paul, Paul, you need to know that there's some dissension among the Christians who are gathered here. Not only do you need to know that there's some dissension here, but there are some serious problems that are related to the way that the Corinthian culture uh, combines Con, is in conflict with the way that the faith is practiced, and they get specific about some of those problems. They say there are legal disputes here in the church, that uh, they don't practice the Lord's Supper the way that they should, and there's sexual immorality here too. And then there's a second piece of correspondence that Paul gets, and that's from the Christian community that gathers and celebrates together, and that letter that goes to Paul just asks questions. Specific questions about how do we practice the faith. So I think it's important to consider the context or uh, to consider where this letter comes from and to remember that this was a letter that was written to a small group of people worshiping. Paul writes to about 80 to 100 Christians that gather together in Corinth. Paul probably never could have imagined that this would be recited as Holy Scripture, uh, Paul never could have imagined that this would have been for the wider audience of the Christian church. But I do think that it's very important to us because this letter is written at a point in time when the Christian community is at a crossroads. It could go one of two ways. This Christian community can recover the disciplined, unified practices of the faith, or it can go the way of the culture. It can go uh, the way of pride, the way of rivalry, the way of competition, the way of self-indulgence. And really, those two ways don't mix very well. Um, and that's a shame because the way of uh, the Corinthians was very much ingrained in who they were. Uh, they were they loved competition. They loved uh, to promote themselves. They loved rivalry. And uh, these aren't... I don't want to, want to promote that these are bad qualities, but they are in conflict with, with the faith. That Corinth hosted these games every two years that were second only to the Olympian Games. They were called the Isthmian Games. And so athletes came from all over uh, the ancient world to compete in, in the Isthmian Games. Corinth also housed Gladiator Games. And gladiators were the epitome of physical strength and they competed either to uh, the injury or the death. Uh, So competition was, was really important in Corinth, physical competition. But not only was physical competition important, but mental competition was important to the Corinthians as well. Rhetoric or persuasive speech was something that they prized, that they wanted for themselves and they wanted for their children to compete in. And there was a, a, a fraction, a faction of skilled speech That was not just called rhetoric, but it was called the sophists. And a sophist spoke wisdom. And wisdom is the topic that we consider today. Wisdom is the topic that Paul writes to the Corinthians about. He wants them to consider what is true wisdom. So this is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. It begins in verse 6. Paul writes this. Among the mature... We do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom. It is secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen Nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So I think what Paul wants the people in Corinth to see is that there are two different ways of wisdom. There's the Corinthian way, The world's way to wisdom and that there's God's way to wisdom. And God's way is very different. And so there are a few characteristics of God's wisdom that I want you to see this morning that I want you to remember. And the first characteristic of God's wisdom is that God's wisdom is about, has a history. God's wisdom has a past. Paul tells the Corinthians that God's, God's wisdom was declared before the ages. For our glory. The wisdom has a past, this wisdom has a past, and it this wisdom has been experienced by the faithful, it has been lived out. We possess this wisdom, this wisdom with a history in the Bible, as well as in our faith tradition. Stories in the Bible describe how God moves. So I think when discerning how God is moving in our lives, when discerning God's wisdom, a valid question for us to always ask is, do I know a story or do I know a teaching of how wisdom was spoken or lived out that would be helpful here? A simple practice that I have engaged in recently is just remembering the 23rd Psalm regularly. I'm trying to do it daily And reciting it for my own benefit. Um, Many times I have a pretty hectic life. And this was one of those weeks. My third grader finished up school. My ninth grader finished up finals. My senior graduated from high school. So it was just one of those very hectic weeks. I had to chuckle one morning this week when I couldn't get past the first verse of Psalm 23 before I found my wisdom. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack for nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Provision, rest, no matter the circumstances, even in a hectic life, the wisdom is there's provision there for you and for me. So um, when considering your life and what does the history of the faith have to say about wisdom, Remember that the two can intersect, and the two often intersect. So God's wisdom always has a history. The next thing I want you to see about God's wisdom is that it is a mystery. So if the first is history, the second is mystery. In Isaiah, the Lord declares, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. And Paul describes God's wisdom to those in Corinth as secret. He writes, it's secret and it's hidden. You know, this must have been hard for those who are worshiping in Corinth. Because the phrase, I don't know, doesn't work very well for those who like to compete. It doesn't work very well for those who want to promote themselves. Sometimes I find myself in a group. Whether it's with my family, like when we gathered for graduation this week, or here in church, or with friends, with someone who is living out the Christian faith very differently from the way that I live out the Christian faith. It's interesting to me that my first instinct when I come across someone who is living out the faith differently is to think, whoa, step back from that. Step away from that. That sounds too different. That sounds a little scary. That sounds even a little crazy. Later in this letter, we hear that Paul writes about the faithful who gathered to worship together as a body. He says, you are the body of Christ. And he says, I can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Neither can the head say to the foot, I have no need of you. But the body of believers has many different members with many different functions. So scripture reminds me of the wisdom that there is a more excellent way of living out God's way in relationship with others. Connecting to everyone, even those that I disagree with. This is countercultural because I admit in that that I don't know it all. What is the prevailing wisdom? The prevailing wisdom, I believe, is to mark off your own camp, sit with those who agree with you, separate from those who are different from me. I don't think we realize it, but when we fortify our strongholds, we are also suffocating revelation. We are suffocating God's wisdom. How can the Holy Spirit speak anything new to me if I'm closed to the ideas and the people who are different from me? Mystery. God's wisdom always leaves room for mystery. So God's wisdom is about history. God's wisdom leaves room for mystery. And then the third one, I have a a scripture passage for you that I want you to fill in the blank. Now, don't worry, this was from what we read earlier, but it's not a memory test. This is just a logic test. So if Paul is writing to the Corinthians about wisdom, and he says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart has conceived what God has prepared for those who... Oh, good memory. That was a memory test for Debbie. Debbie did good, yeah. Yeah, so so what Paul writes there is that we can't conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. Okay, that seems illogical to me. If Paul is writing about wisdom, why wouldn't it be those who know God? That seems logical to me, But to fill in that blank with the head instead of the heart would be the cultural way of wisdom. But Paul says, no, God's way of wisdom Is always about love. N.T. Wright says in this passage that we recognize that wisdom is not just an intellectual pursuit with elegant theories, but God instead gives us God's spirit, and God's spirit is love. So the way that we relate to God is love the way that God relates to us is love that's how we understand God and it's the best way for us to understand wisdom and to understand one another it's the best route to wisdom okay if you're married this I believe is an important point that love is the way to wisdom just because you're right doesn't mean you're right The right way is not always the best way. It was important for me to learn this in my marriage. Keith came with two parents. He wasn't looking for a third parent. He wasn't looking for me to point out the right way to him all the time. Loving relationship always trumps being right. So what is it in my marriage and in other relationships that I can say or do that builds relationships? What is it that I can do that is loving? What is it that I can say that is loving? That is the wise path. And the wise path has a reward to it, Paul suggests. Paul says that God prepares something awe-inspiring for those who choose love. And I think we find that out as we live it out in our relationships. And then the final thing that I want you to see about God's wisdom is that we've been given a template. We've been given a pattern for wisdom as Christians. Four times in the wider passage that takes place here in chapters 1 and 2, Paul mentions the template. He mentions the pattern. He says, it's foolishness to many, this pattern is. He says this pattern is a stumbling block to some. Yet Paul writes that it is the only thing he claims to know while he was with the Christians in Corinth. The pattern, the template is the cross. The answer to wisdom, Paul says, it's always the cross. Years ago, I heard this story about a pastor who was, who was teaching the children in worship. It was a children's time. And he asked the children to tell him what he was describing. He said, okay, this, this thing that I'm describing, it's a small animal that lives in a tree. It has a fluffy tail and it eats nuts and seeds. And so one little girl answered. She took the microphone and she said, well, I know the answer is Jesus, But that sure sounds like a squirrel. (laughs) Sometimes I feel this way when I look around me at what the church is saying and doing. I know the answer is Jesus, but that sure looks squirrely. What is the wisdom of the cross? The wisdom of the cross is many faceted. I believe we can look at the cross and we can be very grateful. We can look at the cross and it can conjure up an appreciation that God suffered for us, that God suffered with us. So it can conjure up sympathy as well. But what is the wisdom of the cross that no one in Corinth gets? What is the wisdom of the cross that would seem ridiculous to the people there, that might seem ridiculous to us, that offers power? To you and to me. My guess is that the wisdom of the cross is about choosing weakness. It's about choosing surrender and limitation when preservation and power are viable options. They would have been to the Corinthians and they are to us. I recently watched the movie Spotlight and it struck me that the only character Living out the wisdom of sacrifice in the story of the Catholic Church in Boston in the late 20th century was this eccentric Jewish attorney who chose not to marry and not to have children of his own because the work that he did to protect those who were unprotected was more important. The surrender, the sacrifice was the wise way. Jesus' ministry was one of surrender. In the Sermon on the Mount, he taught them to turn the other cheek. He taught them to hand over their cloaks with their shirts, to go an extra mile. He taught his disciples to surrender in prayer. When they prayed to the Father, he said, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then at the end of his ministry, at the end of his journey... His prayer was, Father, not my will, but your will be done. We have this template. We have this pattern of surrender, of self-limitation that is the wise way. For any teaching, any instruction, any option in life that we encounter, the wise way, the wise word is always about surrender. It's always about limitation. We can hold any option that we come up with up to the cross and say, does that match? Does it match the power of surrender? Does it match the wisdom of self-limitation? And if the answer is yes, then that's the wise way. That's where to go at the crossroads. Paul concludes his words in chapter 2 with seven words that I think are important. The end of chapter 2, he says, But we have the mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ. So those of us who are believers have the mind of Christ. We understand the cross. We get its wisdom. Now you look in your Bibles, because I don't know if it's in your Bibles, but it was in mine in small print. But we have the mind of Christ. Small print. So use it. Just use it. Will you pray with me? Eternal God, we thank you and we bless you this day for your son, our Lord and Savior, who through his baptism, death, and resurrection, you brought forth the church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and gave to us a new spirit, a new way to be together. We remember that on the night before He gave Himself up for us Our Lord and Savior took bread He gave thanks to you He broke the bread Gave it to His disciples and said Take, eat, this is my body A new covenant given for you When the supper was over He took the cup Gave thanks to you Gave it to His disciples and said Drink from this, all of you This is my blood, it is a new covenant given for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And so we ask, Almighty Father, that you would send your Holy Spirit upon this bread and this cup. Make them be the body and blood of Christ for us, that we may be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Make us one with you, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world, until Christ comes again in his final victory. And we feast at his heavenly banquet. Amen. Would those who are helping with serving communion come forward this morning? So you probably know that communion is served. You don't have to move to receive communion. I mean, you have to get up from your section and come forward. But you don't have to come to the middle if you're sitting on the sides. So communion is served here at the front, and then the two stations of communion move to the sides to serve the wings. Okay, the table is prepared. Our hearts are prepared. Let's celebrate the sacrament of sacrifice together. Amen.